Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to Your Word because You are so gracious to give it to us and You are also gracious to enable us to read it and understand it and to believe it. And so we pray this morning as we hear instruction from You that it would be as though the voice of God Himself were speaking to us so that as we leave here today, we would seek to live it out for the glory of our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Our scripture passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. And you'll find that on page 979 of the Pew Bible. This is the last arena of life in which Paul is addressing on the heels of his statements that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he's been explaining several scenarios in which that type of submission should take place. And this is the last one here, dealing with slaves and masters. Uh, You may have seen on the Discovery Channel the show Dirty Jobs with a man by the name of Mike Rowe. Mike goes into all different sort of scenarios where he finds the dirtiest jobs that you can possibly do. It might be crawling into a sewer. Whatever it is that is a dirty job, he will find it and he will do it and record it on TV. Now, it's a little easier for him to have a good attitude about such thing because, after all, he's probably being paid quite a bit more than the average person who's doing that dirty job. Uh, But occasionally, he'll come across someone who really likes what he does and does it with joy and excitement and seems to wake up and want to go to work and to do whatever this job is that's so foul that very few other people would. Enjoying your work seems to be a prerequisite for doing it well. But what Paul is going to describe here in Ephesians chapter 6 is a whole different kind of motive for doing our jobs and doing them well. It's not merely that we like them, but actually it's the motive of the gospel of grace. So here uh, we see Paul instructing us, beginning in verse 5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there's no partiality with him. You can probably think of a story very similar to this one, and it may even be your story. You work hard in a company, you labor for years, you try to do your best, You do everything the right way and hope that at some point there will be an advancement for you, that you'll you'll move up the ladder, that you'll be recognized by your boss, and before long you will have a promotion. But after a position opens up in management and your expectations are high, you discover that the person who does the hiring and firing has just hired someone much younger than you, much less experienced than you, because it's the son or the daughter of the vice president. And you say, at least inwardly, now that's not fair. 
I've worked, I've labored, I should be the one who would at least be considered for this position. There are lots of unfair practices in the workplace. Lower wages for a certain class of people than for other classes of people. Special privileges for the boss's pet. Maybe even expectations by the boss for work that you should do that's above and beyond your job description. Not only that, but even on the other side with employees who don't give a fair day's work for a fair day's pay, who speak of ill of their boss in public, who stir up trouble in the workplace. There's lots of injustice on both sides in the workplace. But the scenario that Paul talks about here in Ephesians chapter 6 is not merely one that's unfair. He's talking about slavery after all. Beyond unfair, what we would call unjust. Slavery was almost universal in the ancient world. Here, speaking specifically about the Roman Empire, there are some estimates that as many as 60 million people in the Roman Empire were in slavery. 60 million people. Now, those slaves filled a variety of different positions from menial labor all the way up to being a doctor. They might actually be far more educated than their masters, but they were owned by someone. And because of that, there was a real dehumanizing effect of being a slave because you are less than human. You are somebody's property. And so the question on many people's minds throughout the centuries as they come to this text and a similar one in Colossians is, well, why doesn't Paul just condemn the whole institution of slavery anyway? Why does he simply address slaves and tell them how to live within their slavery and masters and tell them how to be masters of slaves? It's a good question, especially considering the history of our own country. A history that permitted slavery, endorsed it, that allowed Africans to be captured overseas, imprisoned, placed in the belly of a ship under inhumane conditions with a very small survival rate, and then be sold into slavery for the rest of their lives so that they could commit, uh, so that they can endure hard labor until they die. It's a good question. Why doesn't Paul simply dismiss the whole institution of slavery and rebuke it? Well, Paul doesn't address the morality of the institution of slavery, whether it's right or wrong. And there's lots of answers proposed as to why Paul doesn't do that. But actually, the, the pastoral answer may be the best answer, the most clear, straightforward answer. And that is, Paul knew that a, a treatise on why slavery as an institution is unbiblical, inhumane, and unjust would not actually help the common slave to which he is writing. After all, the church at this point is very insignificant in the Roman Empire. In fact, it's even unlawful, illegal as an institution. Therefore, they have no clout. So Paul, knowing that, actually does what he can to help slaves and masters by giving them biblical instruction. Here's how you live within an unjust, unfair situation. 
Here's wisdom from the Scriptures. And so his main point is that though the Gospel will eventually lead to structural and legal political changes in the Roman Empire, because it would, for now, the institution stands and Paul wants to give pastoral biblical advice so that as the truth begins to infiltrate on the lowest level, eventually it will mean bringing down the entire institution within the Roman Empire. And so, even though it's right for us to work for change and unjust laws of the land and to seek structural change, seeking mercy and justice, the first thing that we need to recognize is that the Gospel comes in and changes people first. And that's what it ought to do with us. We might be in an unfair situation. And God calls us to live there just as He called His Son to come and live in an unfair situation. And to learn to be people of Christ who will trust in His grace and live from the inside out. Paul knew that one day the Gospel would powerfully work to crumble the whole institution of slavery. But for now, people of God need to know how to live for Jesus wherever they are. And so the question for the slave and for the master sitting in the pew when Paul's letter is being read is, how should I live out the Gospel as a slave? How should I live out the Gospel as a master? And while that's not our question today, because none of us are slaves and none of us are masters of slaves, we might ask the question this way. How should I live out the Gospel in the workplace as a subordinate under the authority of another? Or... If you are a superior, how should I live out the Gospel as a superior who exercises authority over another? Those are our two questions we're dealing with today. And the answer to the first is this. Subordinates have been set free to obey their superiors. That's the first point. Subordinates have been set free to obey their superiors. It's what he tells us here in verse 5. Slaves... Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. We're to obey, he says. Slaves obey. It's actually the same word that he gave in dealing with children. Children obey, in verse 1, their parents. It has at its roots the idea of listening to instructions so as to follow them. We're to listen well and follow those instructions, being obedient. And our obedience is not simply towards our earthly master, but actually toward the Lord Jesus Himself. He says it in verse 5. With a sincere heart, as you would Christ. And he goes on in verse 6 talking about being servants of Christ. And again in verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. In other words, our obedience here is not merely obedience to a human master, but obedience to Jesus Himself. And this is part of what it means to live the Spirit-filled life, as we have already said, where Paul in chapter 5, verse 21, ends his description of the Spirit-filled life, saying that we ought to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Jesus lived in the power of the Spirit, submitting to all types of authority. Not only the good authority of His heavenly Father, but even the wicked authorities on earth that exercised authority over Him, He submitted to them. 
He did not fight back, but willingly stretched himself out that he might be crucified. Here, Paul is distinguishing between earthly masters and the heavenly master. And we are to obey the instructions of our earthly master as if they were the instructions of our heavenly master. In other words, everything that we are to do, we do for Jesus. We do it for His sake. He's our true master. So that when we receive instructions, we say, Yes, Master. Yes, Master. Because this is for Jesus. I do this for Jesus. It may be a task that I do not want to do. It may be a task that I consider to be beneath me. But my heavenly Master is the one who stands behind the authority of my earthly Master. And He is the one who is commanding me to obey, to do it for Jesus. And so what Jesus is telling you is this, that He will receive your obedience to your earthly master as if it was from Him. So that when you seek to obey your earthly master, as long as it is a biblical, righteous command, Jesus says, I will receive it as if it came from my lips and that you're seeking to obey and glorify me. And that's the motive for the true believer. It's the key, you might say, for the person who is in bondage to live as if they were free on the inside. Sometimes because of our outward conditions, conditions that are unfair, conditions that make us feel as though we're in bondage, it actually makes us feel on the inside as though we're in bondage. But when the Gospel comes along, when Christ enters into our hearts, He sets our hearts free. So that now we're not those who expect something better. Expecting more from our bosses. But actually those who realize we have no right to expect more. Who are set free not only from our expectations, but set free from anger. Set free from vengeance. Set free from bitterness. And even set free from the idea that my life is my own. Because you see, we've been bought at a price. And it's the price of God's own Son. So when Christ comes into our hearts, what He does is He sets us free regardless of what the external circumstances are. And it's for this reason that so many who have been in chains literally for Christ have been able to live with joy and live with freedom on the inside. Because Christ has set them free. Think of Paul and his companions who sat within that dank, damp, darkened jail in Philippi. And yet they were singing hymns to their Lord and Savior because their hearts were free. And the same is true for everyone. Everyone who comes to Christ in faith, He sets your hearts free. So that now you're able to labor and say, I'm doing it for Jesus. And not merely for my earthly master. Maybe you're a housewife and what that means is when you feel and sense the drudgery of cooking and cleaning, of taking care of children, you remind yourself that I'm cooking and cleaning for Jesus because He's coming to dinner. That if you're a salesman 
And you know the frustration of dealing with that client who is overbearing. You say, I'm doing this for Jesus. And it causes you to be free and set with great delight on the inside, a joy at serving your master. And he tells us some specific ways that we are to obey. Three in particular. One, he says, with fear and trembling. Verse 5, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. It's a phrase borrowed from the Old Testament that typically referred to how God's people or really anyone who stood in the presence of Him bowed down before Him in fear and trembling. But it's not merely servile fear. The fear of a servant before a tyrannical master, but it's the fear and reverence and awe that the child of God has who has seen the glory of his master and now wants his whole life to glorify and honor the Lord Jesus. Means that we see the authority of Jesus standing behind our superior and we desire to obey and to come to the point where we do everything. And know that we owe everything to Jesus. I owe Him everything. Because He's given me everything. And that's the key to being willing to obey. I owe Jesus everything. Come to the point where I recognize though I'm not a slave of a human master, I am the bondservant, the slave of Jesus, you might say. In fact, the words that he uses here in verses 5 and in verses 6 are the same words translated differently. Slaves in verse 5, servants in verse 6. I'm a slave of Jesus, but He is a good Master. And He only means to do me good. And so I stand before Him in fear and awe and trembling and reverence because I want everything about my life to bring Him glory. And so we do so with fear and trembling, but also, he says, with a sincere heart. We serve our masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, he says. Sincere heart literally means a singular heart. In other words, one that's not divided. Divided between my interests and my master's interests. My upward advancement and what my master wants for me. But a singular heart, one that's not divided, but pure in its devotion. Sometimes we obey for ulterior motives. There are people who are yes men. They always agree with their boss because they think and hope that if I always agree, I'll get on his good side. There are others who maybe say yes to their boss's face, but when they turn around and the boss is gone, they do not work hard. You see, that's not a singular heart, but a heart filled with division and plurality. That I'm going in different directions. That I say one thing, but I do another. And he tells us here, further expounding on this sincerity of heart by saying in verse 6, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers. I service. And that's a made up word. Paul made this word up most likely because it's found nowhere else in antiquity. And what he's saying here is that I ought not do things just to be seen by other people. 
just so that my master can see me, just so my co-workers can see me, so that I can get approval, so that I can get recognition. He says, not as people pleasers, those who are simply interested in gaining approval and moving up the ladder, but rather with the desire to honor Christ and not myself. And so a singular heart is necessary Otherwise, we will always be frustrated in our jobs. Because if we have two sets of motives, one honoring Jesus, the other honoring myself, then I will always be frustrated to try to serve two different masters. I will be frustrated because I won't get the things that I expect for myself. But you see, when I simply give up and want to honor Jesus in what I do, then actually He's the one who rewards me. Which is the last point here of we're supposed to obey not only with fear and trembling and sincere heart, but with a confidence of God's reward. Look at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or a free. There are lots of times your boss fails to see how well you do. There are other times your boss sees how well that you do and fails to acknowledge it, fails to encourage you, fails to recognize you before others. That will never be true of the Lord. He sees all. Regardless of who you are, regardless of what your job is, He sees everything and He will not fail to reward those who seek to serve Him. Because what He does is give to you out of the fullness of His Son. And the Lord Jesus owns everything. And so Christ will not fail to reward you. Now this is not a gospel of works, but merely a gospel of grace where God gives to His people out of His grace rewards that we do not deserve. Rewards that we have not merited. But rather, He takes all of our labors in His name and, on his, and for His glory and says, now I want to reward those things. I want to bless those things. And not one thing that you do well will ever go without a reward. So the Apostle Paul is helping us to see what real freedom in the workplace looks like. How the Gospel begins to reshape us from the inside out, so that our hearts are now changed. So that when I bow down before Jesus and worship Him in all of my labors, I'm actually set free. I'm actually set free. So that the glory of Christ is my number one goal. And I have no other expectation than that what I do would please my Master. And so He gives instructions here to those who are subordinates, but secondly, and we'll go through this very quickly, he speaks to superiors. The point is this, superiors exercise their authority under the watchful eye of God. Superiors exercise their authority under the watchful eye of God. Here's what Paul says to masters in verse 9. He says, masters, do the same to them. Do the same to them. Slaves were called to respect and obey, to listen, to follow. And what he is saying here is that masters should say the, show the same respect and honor 
to their slaves. Do the same to them. In other words, what he is telling masters here is to apply the golden rule that Jesus spoke to the way in which they treat their slaves. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So superiors are to treat them in the same way. That's why he says, stop your threatening. Threats were the common way in which masters would motivate slaves to work. It's a threat of cruelty. And there was much cruelty within the Roman Empire. Because actually, masters were not regulated in how they treated their slaves. Slaves were beaten, they were abused, sometimes even killed. And he says here, now that's not the way that the gospel induces loyalty in people's hearts. Because you see, the way the gospel works is that when we love people well, they love us in return. And that's what he's telling masters. Now, if there's anything revolutionary about the Bible in that Roman culture, it's this. For masters to treat their slaves in a reciprocal fashion. To love them well. And in so doing, they would receive a great response. I heard a story one time about a business owner who evidently did very well in whatever business venture he was in. He had quite a few employees that worked for him. And when he retired, he decided he would set aside $10 million of his revenues to give away to his employees because they had so faithfully worked for him. And he gave to them based on how many years they had worked for him. For some, it might have been $1,000. For others, it might have been $10,000. And that's the kind of loyalty, or excuse me, that's the kind of service that a master gives to his employees that produces loyalty. Because it was said of that company that people delighted to work for this man. They wanted to labor hard. And because they did, they prospered. Because he was a generous employer. And so when the Gospel comes, it radically changes every institution. Not by the power of laws, but by the power of grace. Because it comes into people's hearts and lives and changes how they relate to one another. And masters here are to have a whole new perspective Upon their slaves. He goes on to say, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. In other words, masters ought to look on their slaves and say, we have the same heavenly master. And not only that, but we're created in his image together. So I not, ought not look down upon my slave. I ought not look down on someone else and see them as being beneath me but rather recognize that they are equal to me and treat them that way. See how the Gospel comes in and changes things from the inside out so that it wasn't simply legislation that crumbled the Roman Empire's institution of slavery, but it was rather the power of the Gospel to work in us from the inside out. Now, one last thing here. It's interesting, I think, that he writes to both slaves and masters, assuming that both are present and sitting in the pew. Assuming both are present 
and sitting in the pew. Because you see, it's within the church and under the umbrella of the gospel of grace that there is no distinction of slave or free, of masters and slaves, but all are equal. And Paul calls upon that gospel equality to tell masters, you need to treat your slaves with greater respect and with greater dignity. We're coming to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ here in just a few minutes. And it's a table where everyone's equal in the gospel of grace. And it reminds us that we need to treat one another that way too. In fact, treat one another better than ourselves. And when we do that, there is no longer unfair work conditions, unfair labor, or even unjust labor. It won't happen until we're all in glory together. But that's God's intention to change us from the inside out so that everything that we do, we do for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we turn to You and confess to You that we have often grumbled against our bosses and that as bosses, sometimes we have treated people unfairly. We pray for Your forgiveness. but We pray, Lord, that the Gospel would take root in us and that Jesus' ways, that Jesus' service, that Jesus' authority would take root in our lives so that when we seek to be obedient, we do it for the glory of Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.